Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 14. Somebody has already asked me if I was going to have to change some illustrations this morning, knowing the ladies are back. They thought maybe I was going to use some World Series references. World Series, what's that? Those of you visiting, I'm a Cardinals fan, and uh, there's nothing to talk about this year. And Dwight's a Nationals fan, and he got all excited for two games, and now the reality has come. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, John 14, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Please listen as is appropriate to listening to the Word of God. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So read the words of the living God. So you remember the setting for... This section, Jesus is in his final moments. He knows that the cross is looming. And he's gathered his disciples together to give them his final instructions before he dies. And we have seen a couple of times already that Jesus has said, my soul is troubled. He's stirred. He's, he's agitated. He's He's, there's something inside a visceral response that he's going through 
knowing that just in a matter of hours, he's going to be rejected by his people. He's going to be handed over to the Jews and then the Romans, and he'll eventually find his way to the cross and suffer the Father's wrath upon him. He knows this is coming, and he says, I'm troubled. And then we saw last week, adding to his trouble was a conversation that he had with Judas. He knew all along that Judas was the one. Judas, one of his 12, one of his, one of his close friends, comrades, one of the disciples who followed him. But he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas was going to be the one to go out and bring the Jews to him to have him arrested. And he looked at Judas at one point and he said, we both know what you're about to do. Go do it and do it quickly. And then he has a discussion with Peter. And Peter acts all brave and says, Lord, I'll give my life for you. And Jesus says, will you? No, you won't. Before the sun comes up tomorrow and the rooster crows three different times, you will say you don't even know who I am. So his heart is troubled. But another thing we see is now the disciples have become troubled. They've become stirred in their heart and mind at something Jesus has said. Now again, we've seen this word troubled with Jesus. This is the word that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for when, uh, when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the night and it's foggy and stormy and they think they're seeing a ghost and it says they became troubled. Or Zacharias is in the temple. This is John the Baptist's dad. This is before he's his dad. And an angel appears in the temple. And remember... We're getting close to Christmas time, so I've got to remind you of this like I do every year. Christmas is not what? Christmas is not cute, and angels are not cute. They're not pudgy. They're not adorable. Angels are fierce. They are terrifying. If you ever see an angel, you will not be jumping up and down saying, woohoo. You'll probably be on your face. An angel appears to Zacharias as he's working alone in the temple, and he is troubled. He is, he is gripped. He is stirred inside as he sees this strange being. And Jesus here is troubled. Well, now his disciples are troubled. There's something stirring within them. There, there is something awesome in a, in a terrifying way that they are pondering. Well, what is it? Jesus said to them, I'm leaving you. I'm going. And where I go, you can't come. And this has them very, very worked up and upset. Why? Well, think about what Jesus has done for them, or done to them. Jesus has turned upside down their entire worldview. They've been taught all their lives, from the time they were little bitty guys, they've been taught the Jews are the chosen people of God, and the Pharisees are the leaders. They're they are your authorities. The, the Pharisees are the ones who tell you how to please God. And Jesus has turned upside down everything the Pharisees were teaching. 
He's corrected them. He's rebuked them. He's exposed their self-righteousness. He said, you've heard the Pharisees say this, but I tell you this. Taking away their theological foundations. Said, you come follow me now. I am your signpost to God. I am your messenger. I am the one. I'm the Messiah who you've been waiting for for centuries. I am him. And they've had three years to spend intimately with him and learning from him and following him and seeing him. And now he says, I'm leaving and you cannot come with me. And they're distraught at this. I remember when my children were young, very young, I would uh, travel. I would go to speak at conferences or go to Omaha for our licensing, ordaining, and consecration council uh, meetings. And, and I remember on more than one occasion where on a Sunday night I would be packing my suitcase and preparing things and my wife would be helping me uh, pack and my kids would realize, wait, suitcases usually mean somebody's leaving. Where are you going? I said, well, I got to go out of town for a few days. And their look was just, well, when are you coming back? Well, I'll, I'll be back on Wednesday. I'll be back on Thursday. That didn't satisfy. Why are you going? Well, I have to go do this. I have to do that. When are you coming back? Wednesday or Thursday? Where are you going? Omaha. When are you coming back? It, it, it didn't compute. And to this day, to this day, when I leave to go out of town, if I don't give them like a month's advance notice, they get mad. We didn't know you were leaving. When are you coming back? Why? Because I'm dad. I'm dad. And when dad's gone, there just is this uneasiness about the home. Dad is the foundation. He, he, he's the head of the household. He's the, he's the, uh, the, the substance, the foundation, the, the security for children. When mom goes, it's, are we going to be able to eat? <laughs> We're going to have any clean clothes? When dad goes, it's not practical. It's not specific. It's just this sense of, wow, it's not okay for dad to be gone. Two years ago, my mom died. And when she died, there was a profound sadness for my brother and, and me. There was a, you know, I miss her. Uh, nobody loves a son like his mother. It's just different. I mean, my wife loves me, my daughters love me, other people love me, but nobody loves me like mom. And, and every son knows this. It's, mom loves me, but... When my dad died in January, it wasn't exactly profound sadness. It was just now something foundational in my life is missing. He, my dad's gone. And it's, it's sad, but it's a, it's a different kind of visceral response. The, the, the one that... that that was the heart of our, our family, he's gone. Well, that's what Jesus had, 
had become for these men. Remember, even last week's text, he called them little children. He, he sort of takes on the, the, the mantle of the head of households as little children. I'm telling you, I'm going somewhere and you can't come with me. And, and they're reacting like, wait, dad is, is going. We can't go with him. We don't know where he's going, when he's coming back. And they are troubled in their spirit, in their soul that Jesus is leaving. He says, don't be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Think of it. I'm going somewhere, and you can't come with me just now, but where I'm going, I'm not just going to abandon you. My Father has this massive estate. And in this estate, there are many, 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 many rooms. And there's one with your name on it. And I'm going to get it ready for you to come dwell in my father's house. And I love what he says. If it were not so, I would have told you. Gentlemen, you've been with me for three years. You've seen me do amazing things. You've seen me feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. You've seen me walk across the top of the water. You have seen me heal a lame man. You've seen me give sight to the blind. You've seen me raise Jairus' daughter. You've seen me raise Lazarus from the dead. You trust me, right? You believe in God. Believe also in me. You trust me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If that were not true, don't you think I would tell you? Don't you think I would let you know what's real? I'm telling you, it's good that I leave because when you get there, you're going to be thankful. And then he, he, he adds this. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. Do you see the parallel? The parallel to the room that he's preparing is himself. The greatest joy that we will experience in the next age is not the mansion that we're going to dwell in. It's not the streets of gold. It's going to be the fact that we are in the very presence of Jesus and see him face to face. There is no greater joy that any human being can experience than to be in the presence of Christ. He says, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me forever. What's troubling you today? What's got your heart stirred What's causing anxiety, frustration, uncertainty? We've all got them. What is it about the future, the next year or two or five, that has you a little worked up thinking, I don't know if this is going to be okay? We could take the time and go through and everybody could list something, no doubt. But Jesus' answer would be the same. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? I know you believe in God. Do you believe in me? 
on the other side of this, whatever your this is, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take you. He's going to say, come here. Look at this suite that I have prepared just for you. In my Father's house, and you and I are going to live together for all eternity. It's going to be okay. It's going to be better than okay. It's going to be beyond our wildest dreams. No disappointment, no concerns, no sorrows at all. That's what's coming. He says, do you trust me? That's where this is all heading. So the question for us is, do we trust him? I've told you over and over again, the scripture is clear. This side of that day is hard, and it's going to get harder. Afflictions are promised us. But that's not the end of the story. He's coming back to get us. And then he says this strange thing in verse 4, and, by the way, you know the way to where I'm going. I think what happened, it, it's not in the text, but, you know, as a, as a Greek scholar, I, can, I know these things. I'm pretty sure Thomas paused for a second expecting Peter to speak up. Because that's what Peter usually does, right? But Peter's probably over in the corner pouting about the whole, you're going to deny me thing. So finally, Thomas asked the question. They were all like, Lord... What do you mean we know the way you're going? We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says one of the most profound things he ever said. We know this so well. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the path. It's not about a destination out there. It's me. So occasionally I'm asked the question, you're a Christian, right? Yes. So, you know, you, you Christians are all kind of narrow-minded, you, you, even a little bit arrogant. Um, am I to believe that you as a Christian believe that, that Jesus and Christianity, that, that he's the only way to get to God? And I always say, no, 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 where'd you hear that kind of thing? Of course not. Every path that man can take leads straight to God. Every single one. In fact, the doorway to God is very simple and everyone's going to go through it. Death. But here's how the Bible describes that. It is appointed for man wants to die and then, what? Judgment. Every road leads to the top, and there you will meet God, the judge. But only one of those paths leads to God, the Father. Only one of those paths prepares us for that meeting with God, the judge, so that he is not God, the condemning judge, but he's God, our Father. And that way is Jesus. Only through Jesus Christ can we stand before that judgment seat and be forgiven. Jesus himself said it. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. I am the way to the Father. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, all of our sins have been taken off of our account and put on the account of Jesus, and his righteousness is given to us, and we can now approach the throne in boldness because our sins are forgiven. We've been covered by the blood of Jesus, and only Jesus can get us there. When someone accuses you of being arrogant in your exclusive claims of Jesus, you say, look, I didn't make this up. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. If you've got a problem, take it up with him. Because he's the one that said, I am the way and nobody gets to the Father except through me. And we know why that is. Because only Jesus died in our place as the sacrificial lamb. Buddha did not die for your sins. And by the way, he's still dead. Muhammad did not die for your sins. And by the way, he's still dead. Confucius did not die for your sins. And by the way, he's still dead. On and on down the list we can go of all of these who claim to tell us something about God. And they're all dead. And none of them took the wrath of God upon himself for us. This is why there's only one way to the Father and that is through the atoning work of the Son. He says, I am the way. And then he gives two more qualifiers. I am the truth. I had a conversation this past week with an unbeliever, and he said, ah, you know, I, just, I have all these questions uh, about, about God and, and the trustworthiness of the Bible, and, and is Jesus, you know, who really is he, and, and all this, and, and I'm a logical guy, and I study all these things. And he said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me, just set all that aside and, and believe. I said, absolutely not. He turned his head sideways and said, what? Because everybody ever, every Christian I've ever talked to just says, no, 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 you've got to put all that aside and just take this on faith. I said, let me tell you something. If I can't persuade you that this is true, you shouldn't believe a word of it. And let me tell you something else. If anybody ever convinces me that Christianity is not true, I will drop it like a Chicago cub. I don't know what that means. You know what I mean. I will abandon this in a heartbeat if it's ever proven to be false. We are not calling people, and Jesus did not call people, to set aside rationality and take this leap of faith into the abyss of the unknown. Close your eyes and pretend like what you see is not real and just believe. That's not Christianity. Jesus says, I am the truth, and truth is true, and we should believe it because it's true, not because we're taking some blind leap of faith. Jesus is the truth. What do you mean by that? He is the full and final revelation of God himself. The Hebrew writer talks about how God spoke in, in the Old Testament. He spoke in various ways in ancient times through different prophets, through different means, through different voices. But now, he has spoken to us in his 
Son, the final revelation, the full revelation. There's no more information to be had. Jesus is the true revelation of everything God has to say. And it's real, and it's historically true. Jesus really did live, he really did die, and he really did rise from the dead. He is the truth. Don't believe this simply because it feels right. Don't believe this because it'll save you from hell. Believe it because it's true or don't believe it. Jesus says, I am the truth. He says, I am the life. This goes back to John 1, right? Jesus is the one who has revealed God. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has revealed him, and in him was life, eternal life. No one else can bring eternal life. None of those dead gods can bring eternal life. None of those dead prophets can bring eternal life. But Jesus, who is alive, is life. That's the reason he's the way, because he's the truth, and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. How many people are in the category of no one? Does that mean maybe a few? A few can come to the Father except through Jesus? Poor tribesmen in Africa who've never heard, they can come to the Father except not through Jesus? No, no one comes to the Father except through Christ. And then Jesus gives a little bit of a rebuke here. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip looks over at Peter. Oh, Peter's still not talking. He says, okay, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine being Jesus in this encounter? Jesus, everything you have done is, is I mean, it is awesome. And everything you've taught us is Oh, it, it is, it is, wow. I mean, this has, been, this has been a really great ride, Jesus. But if you show us the Father, that'll be good enough for us. Oh, these disciples. Gives us hope, doesn't it? And Jesus, right after he face palms, says, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? Really, Philip? Remember what I've done? I've healed the blind. I've healed the lame. I've walked across the top of the water. I've fed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. I've raised a few people from the dead. Really, Philip? I've been here with you these years and you don't know who I am? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Beloved, there is no graduating from Jesus to God. When we get there and we see him as the lion and the lamb, when we gather around the throne on, in Revelation 7 and every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered there and they see Jesus on the throne, please don't be the one who runs up and says, hey, Jesus, I'm so glad to finally see you, but could you show us the Father? Because he's going to give you the face palm. 
There's, there's nothing beyond Jesus to get to. It's not like Jesus is the junior deity, you know, the apprentice. But we want to get to the boss. Now, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is the full disclosure of the Father. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say, I don't speak on my own initiative. He's been telling them this over and over and over again. It's the Father abiding in me who does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or at least believe the works. I mean, how else do you explain all the miracles I've done if it's not from the Father? Oh, Philip. So then in verses 12 and 13 and 14, he says some amazing things that are among the hardest things for us to grasp, at least for me to grasp. Verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. That's pretty exciting, huh? Anybody here raise the dead lately? What? He said, you can do great works. It's a tough one, isn't it? Because we immediately default to those miracles, and we start thinking, well, why aren't we going around doing miracles all over the place? All right, let's keep this in the right story, in the right context. What is the great work that Jesus has done? What's the greatest work that Jesus has done? Is it really healing the sick? No. That's not the greatest work he's done. Is it raising the dead? I mean, that's pretty great. But by his own testimony, that doesn't seem to be the greatest work. The greatest thing Jesus has done is he has shown his disciples the Father. That's what he came to do, to bring people to the Father, to point people to the Father, to reveal the Father, to glorify the Father. And what does the Father do? He, in turns, glorifies the Son, worship Him, serve Him, bow the knee to Him. And this all took place before the death and resurrection itself. So what does he mean when he says you will do greater works? I think he means you are going to do more converting than I did. You're going to bring more people to glorify the Father and the Son than I did. And you're going to be able to do it with the full story. I mean, I've been, you know, sort of picking at the disciples here and mocking Peter and Philip and Thomas. And they deserve it. I mean, come on. But we can understand the scripture goes on to say they could not see the whole story yet. Their eyes were blinded. God, God prevented them from understanding the full, full story until the resurrection. And then he opened their eyes. Then he opened their minds to understand everything. 
Prior to this, even in this conversation, they did not get it. They were not able to tell the whole story of the fulfillment of everything God was doing in Christ because it hadn't happened yet. It's still hours away, the death and resurrection. And they see him crucified. They see him dead, and they don't go get excited. As, as D.A. Carson said, it's not like at the crucifixion. They all went and, and took their lawn chairs to the tomb and said, "Woohoo! can't wait till Sunday. The resurrection is going to happen any moment now. They didn't do that. They were, they were sorrowful. They were, they were sad. Our, our, our king, our Messiah is dead. Now what? Because they didn't understand. They didn't fully believe it. But he's telling them ahead of, the, ahead of time, you're going to do more of what I've been doing. It's going to be greater than what I'm doing. Bigger numbers and the full disclosure of who I am and who the Father is. Think about how many people Jesus led to the Father. 120? I mean, that's how many were gathered in the upper room after the resurrection, the book of Acts. Maybe there were some others that didn't make it into the room. But when Peter stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost, his first sermon brought 3,000 people to the Father. That's a pretty good day. I'd be okay with that. And then a little bit later, 5,000? And think about how many people these 11 men, plus the Apostle Paul, have led to glorify the Father and the Son. Well, all of them, right? Every Christian. Because our only understanding of the gospel is through what those men did. So yeah, they did miracles, sure. Peter saw the, the one guy there, the lame guy, says, get up, in the name of Jesus, get up. And he did. And Paul raised someone from the dead after he bored him to death in his sermon. But he, I mean, they did this kind of stuff, but they didn't do a lot of it. How many people did Paul and Peter and John walk past who they could have healed, but they didn't? We need to get our minds off of the miraculous physically and get our eyes on the miraculous spiritually. The greatest miracle that exists on planet Earth is taking a spiritually dead person and giving him spiritual life. And these apostles went out in the power of the Holy Spirit and they did that. And guess what? We could do the same thing. We can do greater works than Jesus. More of them and in the full story of what Jesus came to do. This man I was talking to last week, I have great hope for him. The kinds of questions that he's asked, discussions we're having, ah, sure seems to me like the Spirit of God is chipping away at that wall that he's built up. And I can't wait to bring him and introduce him to you as a new brother in Christ. I'm praying for it. And I'm doing my part but the Holy Spirit's got to do his part. That's what's wrapped up in the word because here. He will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. Now we have to wait until the upcoming weeks to find out what he means by that, but here's the preview. He's going to the Father and he will send the Spirit. And it's that Spirit who will empower greater works than even Jesus did as people come in mass to faith in Christ and the full testimony of what Jesus did. Well, speaking of prayer, 
Verses 13 and 14 can be pretty exciting. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That's a big statement. I wonder sometimes if this statement dies the death of a thousand qualifications in our church. Now I'm going to qualify it. (laughs) Not a thousand times, just one. But before I qualify it, can you at least just look at those words and ask yourself, do I believe this? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Does your doctrine of God's sovereignty overrule Jesus' promise here? Here's how you can know. Do you pray as a fatalist? I have to go through the motions of prayer because I'm supposed to pray, but I don't really think God's going to hear my prayer and do anything because, you know, God's sovereign. He's already determined the end from the beginning, and so therefore I'm just going to go through the motions. It is true, the Bible says God is sovereign over everything. Not even a hair falls out of your head. Apart from the will of God, not a bird falls to the ground. No fly ball falls to the ground. Apart from the will of God. We'll find out whose team he's on here in the next few days. It's true, God is sovereign. It's also true that Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. We think we can reconcile those. We think we can explain those. And what happens when we try to bring those together is one or the other falls apart. Either we don't really believe God is sovereign or we don't really believe God hears and answers prayer. There's tension here, and if you pull too hard from either direction, it snaps. We have to believe God is absolutely sovereign over all things and that he hears and answers prayer. If you don't pray believing that Jesus is hearing you and will answer you, then you're not taking him at his word. Here's the qualification. He says, whatever you ask in my name. Oh, we know that one, right? As long as you slap on the end of your prayer in Jesus' name, you're good. Isn't that what he means? Whatever you say, qualify, or explain at the end within Jesus' name, I'll do this. No, that's not what he means. You realize nobody in the Bible ever actually says in Jesus' name? No one ever prays that way in the Bible? Probably every prayer you've heard me say finishes with in Jesus' name, and almost every prayer I've heard you say ends with in Jesus' name. It's good. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But it's not like the salutation we tack on the end that now all of a sudden God's got to hear us. What, do we, what does he mean by praying in my name? He means your access to the Father is through me. You have no inherent right, and I have no inherent right to approach God. We can only get to him through Jesus. But there's more to that. The in Jesus name connotes we're asking for the glory of the Father and Jesus. Did you see that in verse 13? Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The way John repeats this in 1 John is, whatever you ask according to his will. 
Now, we don't know what his will is in particular circumstances. Right? We don't always know that. Now, if it's sin, obviously we know what his will is. It's not sin, so we can pray that very specifically. But we don't know the future. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what will bring glory to God in this particular situation. Think about the difference between Judas and Peter. Two men who betrayed Jesus. We are not told that Jesus prayed for Judas. He says to Judas, go do what you're going to do. He says, woe to that one. It'd be better for him if he had not been born. Then Peter betrays Jesus. But Jesus has already told him, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Satan wanted to sift Judas like wheat. And he did. Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, and Jesus prayed for Peter. Now, Jesus has the slight advantage of being omniscient by the Spirit of God. So he knew how Judas was going to glorify God. The hard truth, his glory was going to be in his betrayal. He also knew how Peter was going to glorify God. Yes, he would deny him, but he would then repent. So Jesus was able to ask specifically the right thing because he knew the outcome. We don't know those things. So we ask in faith. We ask saying, this seems to me what would bring you glory. And then we trust the Lord to do what he's going to do. And we will know what the answer is, depending on how it comes to pass. But we are to pray earnestly. Jesus says, if you ask in my name, if you ask in my glory, for my Father's glory, through me and in me, I will do it. The question is, how fervently and diligently do you pray for things that you believe would glorify God in his Son? Or do you go through the motions of prayer? Check, prayed, all right, move on. We need to be earnest. Jesus was earnest. Sweat drops like blood. Paul was earnest. Peter was earnest. We need to ask and ask and ask. Remember when those of you who were here when we were ready to launch our East Campus a few years ago? We had a, a couple of huge needs. We were convinced that launching the East Campus would glorify God. But we needed 75 people to be willing to go launch that campus. And we needed a boatload of money. And what do we do? We prayed. And we didn't go to a single person and say, hey, would you go? That's not true. I did go to one person. Not because I didn't, want, didn't like him. You know, I was like, would you go? It wasn't that. Just I thought, I thought you'd be perfect to go. But we as elders did not go to people and say, hey, you should go, you should go, you should go. We, said, we trust the Lord here. We are going to ask the Lord. We wanted 70 people. And on the day we brought them all up here to commission them and bless them and send them, 150 people came forward and said, we'll go. And the boatload of money we needed to raise, within six weeks, we raised every penny we needed and we still met our annual budget. Now, either a bunch of you have been holding out and giving far less than you could have, 
or the Lord Jesus said, that will glorify my name if you launch that East Campus. I'm going to give you the people and the money to make it happen. But we prayed and prayed and prayed and the Lord provided because it would glorify his name. How much, how can I say this? How much of the things that would glorify the Father through the Son do we not see happen because we don't ask? I don't know. But I'm challenging every single person in this room, including me, to take Jesus at his word. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Ask. Ask big. We don't want the East Campus to be the last one. We want to fill this city. I'm ready for the next one. You know how it's going to happen? You asking. And Jesus saying, yes, that will glorify me. Our whole lives are to be lived to the glory of the Father through his Son. And we have to ask in order to do that and accomplish the mission that we've been given. Don't let your heart be troubled. We have a mission to complete. We have work to be done. And it's going to be hard. We have an enemy who's trying to take us out. But he will provide what we need now. And he is away preparing a place. And someday we are going to join him and live forever. And the fight will be over. Until then, we preach Christ. We live for Christ. And we pray to Christ. Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, I'm asking, right now I'm asking, I believe it would glorify your Father through you if you bring people to yourself through our ministry, if, if our evangelistic outreach would bring people from death to life. So I'm asking that it would be so. Lord, I'm preaching the gospel to this man I was talking about and his wife. I know many of my brothers and sisters in this room are preaching the gospel to unbelievers. I'm asking in the name of Jesus for your glory that you bring them to yourself through our ministry. Lord Jesus, I'm asking here for the next campus, that you will raise up leaders, that you'll bring the money, that you will fill this room with so many people that we have to send them out because we can't afford anymore. We can't, we can't receive anymore. And Lord, I don't know all the other ways that you would bring glory to yourself through the people in this room, but would you, by your Spirit, fill us with that desire to pray to you and then to act accordingly and to trust that you will do whatever will bring you glory. That's our heart's desire. We don't ask for ourselves. We're not looking to, to build our name up. We want to see the name of Jesus proclaimed in this city. And so we ask, may it be so. Amen.